Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So maybe one of the things that I'm kind of looking at is, you know, why do we, why do we approach these diseases with such caution first? And, and as each variant comes out, we don't just breathe a sigh of relief that it might be less deadly. Here's an interesting thought. I would much rather have a virus that is way more deadly and way less infectious than a virus that is way more infectious and way less deadly. It is time now for something positive. We might be headed to the promised land, the promised of speaking land, the truth the land. and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. Problem can only be solved when there is a kind of coalition of conscience. Of conscience. Because conscience. that is how it works. This is the beginning. It is not the finale. And that's why we're here. And that's why we rally, 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 rally. We've got to be that creative minority. Creative minority. Creative minority. Find a way to get in the way. I got in trouble. It was good trouble. It was necessary trouble. Frankly, I know we've got to do something. All right. And welcome back. It's wait. Hello everybody. Welcome back. It's Thursday the 16th of December. We are going to be joined by our favorite infectious expert, Dan. See how he's a man I say with that? an infectious intelligence and an infectious <laughs> smile. <laughs> he's my right. superman. Can you, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, mm-hmm. buddy. Sure. Great. I'm can. just trying to sort out some audio on my end, so just give me one hot second so feel free no to problem. Keep I apologize. No problem. Um, You can find Public Access America anywhere you find your favorite podcast. And you can find this on our live streams every Sunday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube. So I had one question, and then Jeffrey has a whole bunch of questions. I did ask for the full Dan today. I'm excited about that one. I'm tired of dumbing down this conversation. It seems like every media agency does that with either denial or hysteria. And I just kind of wanted a really fact-based, like, 
great. I want homework when I'm done with this, but I only have one question ahead of all that for Dan when he's ready. It better not be whether or not a booster can give you a big PP. No, no, no. I just want him to um, tell me what my holiday protocols are before we get into everything else. Like what, what I should be doing, looking out for asking other people to do ahead of the holiday. I don't uh, want to walk in. Don't I don't want to walk into. I don't want to walk into a COVID bomb. So how don't, do I uh, don't string the ornaments together to create your own homemade set of anal beads? Oh, but they yeah, light you up. Don't want, yeah, you don't want those to break. That seems like a bad idea. It's, it's the a only terrible way idea. Can, it's the only way I can afford a PET scan. You know what I mean? Did you guys see? <laughs> oh Lord! Did you did you guys hear, hear the story? There was a guy in England. Um, no, it wasn't England. It was some guy who found was it a a mortar, an unexploded World War II mortar, and decided yeah. to 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 put it up there. Yeah, oh. spot on the hospital. He oh. found it. Yeah, he found it. He didn't. Yep. I didn't know he admitted to actually. No, like, well, he said that he accidentally sat on it, and I'm like, no. Look, there's a lot of things I've accidentally sat on, but. It has not yeah. ended up on my ass. Two words. Okay. Holiday planning. Some, some, some public safety guidance, flared base, everyone, a flared base. We did that in a couple episodes again. I'll go right. Like flare your butt plugs. Honestly. Yes. <laughs> uh, what, what, what wonderful way to start off the holiday season is talking about, you know, yeah. And six, stretching with a bomb. Yeah. 16, 16% of everything that went up the rectum accidentally was live ammunition that was are, something i took away from that are, are you kidding me and 30 percent was stuff wow. in the ear i think so what you're saying so what you're saying is ammo sexuality is now actually a thing oh god <laughs> ammo sexuality i love that so don't, Jeff, don't get me wrong i love i love shooting off a good rifle like I, i'm i'm a big fan you know i, nice. I get, to, get to do it every once in a while but i've never once had the the thought of you know what i'm going to take this thing that is potential well, is explosive by definition and and put it into my body right. i feel like the, the whole point of an ammunition is to put it into another body or into a target but not to your own that's right so, yeah well i mean there is the tiktok challenge that's been going around lately that's a revival from the old challenge uh, back in the day called bointing a loaded gun at my venus no why 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 I got to watch somebody uh, win a Darwin Award because, well, they're never going to be able to reproduce, but they definitely ended up a toothpick at two olives short of martini. Oh, no. Oh, my. It's yeah. not the suppository. It's the delivery device. <laughs> anyway, Dan, ahead of the questions that Jeffrey had, and I and I love it, I just wanted to uh, ask you what my holiday protocols could should be. You know, people are just tuning in. They want to know. So ahead of Omicron and Delta and COVID and everything else we're worrying about, what should I ask other people to be doing for me ahead of the holiday? And what should I be doing for other people ahead of these get-togethers? That's a good point. So at this point right now, um, with the way the vaccination works for COVID, if people are not vaccinated right now, if they go and get vaccinated right now, they're not going to have like perfect protection. Uh -huh. um, but if their people are unvaccinated and you're just planning to spend time around them with the holidays, I, I think it's a very reasonable thing to encourage vaccination if they're medically able to get it. Um, and if you're working and if you're not sure of the company that you're going to be keeping, um, if they're vaccinated or not, I mean, it is well within your rights to ask if they're vaccinated. They don't have to answer. But I think it's important to keep that in mind, because even though, you know, there's all this stuff with Omicron going around, but even with or without Omicron, Delta being the predominant variant in 
the United States is still very dangerous. And actually, I just got off the phone with a friend just a few minutes ago. Um, his uh, Two of his family members died of COVID in three days. And what happened was one of them was careless. One of them thought he had a minor cold. Um, his spouse went to go visit some in-laws and, you know, oh, no big deal. I'm feeling fine. My husband feels sick. So they went, but I feel fine, not knowing that they could be an asymptomatic carrier. Sure enough, asymptomatic carrier from point A to point B, and now two people are dead and other ones in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reality is that you don't have to feel sick to spread COVID. And even if you don't feel like you're sick, you might also, it, it takes a while for us to recognize that we are sick. So it's really important to be mindful um, of, be careful of who you're spending time with, um, understand that you know, masking and distancing and hand hygiene only goes so far. The vaccine is an amazing tool. Be very, very careful this holiday season. Um, I know that people are kind of thinking COVID's over. It's not over. And this still remains a pandemic of the unvaccinated. The people who are unvaccinated are the ones getting whacked really hard with severe cases with hospitalizations and ultimately deaths. That's just really not happening nearly as much among those who are vaccinated. So I keep pressing the vaccine thing because the data supports it. Be, be responsible, be mindful, ask for your own safety and for the safety of your loved ones. So right. that's, that's kind of my, my brief summary. It's okay to avoid a get together because other, because people refuse to get tested or vaccinated. You can get tested, you can get tested ahead of a get together. I think that I've heard about that for a lot of Christmas get togethers. There's um, requests that people are tested on site the day, <laughs> the day before they come yep. in. I have and seen I, a couple of those. So and you can I just, get the rapid, you can get the rapid at home test. The one thing mm. to keep in mind is that um, asymptomatic testing um, if you're not feeling any symptoms with those tests, you can still you can have a, a pretty high false negative rate as well if you're actually an asymptomatic carrier. So, um, okay. it's one a negative test is a reassurance. It is not a guarantee. Okay, fair enough. Still, avoiding is the best issue. Yeah, I agree. I agree. For, for just for this year, I mean, Dan, you got engaged in this pandemic. I, I you got married in this pandemic. So there's safe ways to do it, obviously. But people need to put the thought into the safety ahead of time and not the regret afterwards. Absolutely. So. And I, we very heavily modified our wedding plans and basically yeah. stayed with our own bubble because that was mm-hmm. what worked and was safe and was responsible. And um, yeah. we were fortunate to have access to the vaccine as well. So I mean, yeah. that, that's. Yeah, the, 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 it sounds like old hat. It sounds like just you know, playing the same piece of music over and over again. But it, it really does work. The testing, mm-hmm. the being careful about who you bubble with, making being responsible, the hand washing, the masking, the vaccinating. It it, it works, yeah. but it's not. There's no one fail safe approach. You have to be careful and be responsible with all of it. At least you're alive to warn us, and I'll leave the rest. <laughs> I'll leave the rest to Jeffrey. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's. <clears throat> I mean, even looking at data from CDC, I mean, there was a bunch of really good information that came out this last week. You know, unfortunately, you know, I'm not going to get into the political side. We already know what that looks like. I'm going to go strictly with, you know, something that is not political, but being vaccinated versus not being vaccinated. This is not a political thing. It should have never been a political thing. But even the data supports the fact that like right now, the you know people who are unvaccinated are 14 times more likely to die than people who are vaccinated it's not sure it's not perfect but when you look at what the data supports you know it's very clear being vaccinated is your best bet to staying alive and boosters boosters are going to be an interesting one 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's really interesting that we as a society hold vaccines to such a higher standard of efficacy or perceived worthiness than most other medications as well. Like you talk about how many people are on statins to control um, you know, cardiovascular disease and, and, and cholesterol levels like Lipitor, how many people are on Cialis for erectile dysfunction, right? There, there's all kinds of, yeah, <laughs> no comment about whether or not Jason raised his hand. Um, all these, all these, uh, medications that we just take for granted are, are on the whole way less effective and have way more side effects than most vaccines. do. <clears throat> but I guess it's maybe something to do with the fact that it's injected and it's so, it's so, it's not like for something that you have as a, or is diagnosed with. It's not a treatment. It's kind of a prevention. Whatever the case is, you know, people hold it to a way higher standard. But the reality is that they work. And even if they only worked fifty percent of the time, you know, I, I think that would it's still worthwhile. Um, so yeah, agreed. agreed. Jeffrey, you have you. I hear it sounds like you have much more to talk about or many more questions for me. So fire got, away, my friend. I've got plenty of questions for you. You know, being something. Uh, being someone that reads a ton, you know, I recently had the question about boosters because, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that I had read was, you know, whether or not you needed a booster, you know, there's been a lot of studies out there about people who've had COVID and then got vaccinated, have super antibodies and have a much higher uh, antibody count than most people. Uh, very, very uh, just anecdotal note here. My mom had COVID got both shots of Moderna, went and got an antibody test done to figure out if a booster was necessary and heard something about what the range was. I can't seem to find it, but my mom's antibody count was at 251. Um, and it's the uh, IgG. I went and had an antibody test done um, because I wanted to see where I was at. And I was pretty sure that I had COVID, uh, got both shots of Moderna. My antibody count at that time was at 281. So like I have a very high antibody count, but as I asked my aunt, it's like, Hey, you know, what is there? What are you hearing about? What, what, uh, what should it look like in terms of getting boosters? Um, she handed me a bunch of really good articles to read, knowing that, you know, I'm a well-read person in the scientific community. And one of the things that stood out to me was that we really don't have what we would consider uh, an appropriate antibody range for diseases. And I'm kind of curious about what that means What for anybody who is and isn't considering a booster. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a really great question. I'm glad that it's evidence-based. So a couple things to, to keep in mind is, first of all, um, there is kind of a call for an international standard. Um, and there was not necessarily a standard for here's the threshold for immunity, but um, early on in the pandemic, the World Health Organization um, standardized the units or international units for you know different types of antibodies for, for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. So that, that information is out there. I think a couple of things to keep in mind are, first of all, the FDA does not recommend the use of antibody tests to assess levels of immunity after vaccination. And there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, no two antibody tests are created equally. And a lot of them are not, it's it's not necessarily that they're approved or not approved. There's a, it's just a different process than, you know, say a vaccine or a medication or something like that. So uh, some, antibo some antibody tests measure antibodies against the spike protein. Some antibody tests measure against the nucleocapsid protein, which is another part of the virus body. The, the Pfizer-Moderna vaccines are only authorized to, well, not authorized, they're designed 
to present a version of the spike protein on our cells so that we can recognize it. So if you are getting an antibody test for a nucleocapsid protein as opposed to a spike protein, you could, be, you could test antibody negative after getting vaccinated. And that actually was a big problem when these vaccines, these, the second doses came out, people were like rushing to get the, the vaccines, uh, the antibody tests to say, oh, did my vaccine work? And they were negative and they're like, wait, this is ridiculous. So the vaccines don't work. And then, you know, you snowball um, conspiracy theories from that. So mm-hmm. a couple of questions I'd ask was, you know, do you know whether or not the antibody test you got was for IgG for um, uh nucleocapsid protein or for spike protein. You know, that depends on the brand. Uh, the second thing would be, in general, even with that question, the FDA does not really recommend, you know, saying, oh, my antibody level is X, therefore, you know, we should get a booster. All of it is based on general risk factors for populations. So, you know, the the booster rollout has been recommended for, well, initially it was recommended for high-risk groups. Now it's recommended for, I believe, all adults. If you are able to get a booster, it is recommended that you go get one regardless of your antibody count. Um, so I don't know if that's a direct answer to your question about like what is the antibody standard. Um, but the the main thing is, according to those of us who have been studying for this this virus and the epidemiology and the immunology for a long time, it shouldn't really matter. We, we recommend booster shots for those who are able to get them and those who are recommended for and that's the interesting thing too is, is it's not just this particular virus that you have that you have that issue with it's every single shot every single vaccine that we get we don't have a, a an antibody count or an antibody range that we actually study and that we're effective in you know that we say is effective and that was one of the things that i looked at too because you know seeing that we don't necessarily have that for covid it's like okay well you know do we have something like that for any of the other diseases that we get vaccinated for. And overwhelmingly, what I found was, no, we don't actually, we just kind of understand like, what the effective time range is of the of the vaccine or the booster that we get. You know, for example, with tetanus, we know that we need to get it about every 10 years. And, you know, it's just that, you know, we recognize it about that point, that's when, you know, we effectively start losing our ability to fight off the, you know, tetanus. So, is the do you foresee any type of push towards using antibody tests in order to figure out when it would be effective to get boosters, or is this going to be something where we're looking more at time-based data? I think we're going to be mainly looking at time-based data and relativity data for now. I think in the coming years, because the reality is COVID is not going away. I think we talked about this the last time I was on the show. Like it's it's a pandemic now, but COVID, we're never going to eradicate COVID. The reality. Um, I think over time there's going to be some more standardization because there's going to be these ongoing questions, not necessarily because it's been or is supposed to be standard practice in the field, but more just like COVID has thrown infectious disease epidemiology into the public eye in a way that's unprecedented for decades. And so, and with all this access to, you know, the age, this is the first major seriously global pandemic that we had major shutdowns for and everything in the age of instant information that we're at. So I think what's going to happen is people are going to have more interest and kind of drive the public demand for further information. Um, But the other thing is that when you are testing for antibodies, it's not just like what antibodies are you testing for, what brand are you using or whatever. There's there's also different methods that are like laboratory based um, that when you're just trying to assess antibody levels empirically, there's different methods like ELISA's enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays versus, you know, neutralization titers versus there's LS spots. There's all kinds of ways to assess immunity. So it's not like 
and, and they will all give slightly different results. The matter, what matters is the consistency of those results in the units that are designed for those tests and then tracking the trends over time. So for example, there was a really famous study that was published a few months about seven months ago. It was in the age of, you know, the second boosters had been authorized. People were wondering, did they work? And the, the major finding was those who were boosted had comparable antibody titers in general based on a particular method compared to those who had had COVID and had one shot. But those who had COVID and had two shots were, you know, had you know, a hundredfold more. So I think a lot of the discussion is going to be driven by a fold increase because they're so many, so many people doing so many different methods uh, to assess antibody levels by their own, you know, pick your favorite method here. I think the main thing is going to be the standardization is fold increase, like tenfold, hundredfold, thousandfold, based on whatever <laughs> units you use, as opposed to, hey, this is the st global standard, gold standard test that we're using across the world. We're just not there yet. Give it time. Give it a little bit of a faded public scrutiny for a little bit this to be standardized out. And once we get more of a rhythm of how these COVID variants emerge over time and how to be prepared. So, yeah, they, I, I, I hear you. You, you want to have a standard answer. I think right now, look at fold increase for you know boosting non-boosting covid non-covid etc over looking for a golden number by some particular method mm -hmm. now that that's that's an interesting idea so kind of moving on past that you know along with the booster discussion next question was one of the things that i was reading up is is that what they're finding is that with these with these vaccine shots they're finding that people are having a variety of antibody responses that are allowing them to be more effective at fighting diseases beyond just COVID. Um, and of course, falling down that rabbit hole, one of the things that I actually learned about is that there is a human coronavirus that's part of, you know, our common cold complex. And so I was kind of curious, what does that look like, you know, as we understand the vaccines now versus as, you know, let's say as, as companies like Moderna build in their, their booster uh, seasonal flu and RSV vaccines? Yeah, really good question again. Um, yeah, so coronaviruses are, it's not just that this is a coronavirus that is the first time it's ever been called a coronavirus. We knew about coronaviruses for decades because first of all with SARS, the original SARS from you know, the OG SARS from <laughs> the early 2000s, but also coronaviruses are kind of part of the natural viral flora, if you will, that that make up what we collectively call the common cold. There's rhinoviruses, enteroviruses, coronaviruses, there's all of them kind of kicking around. Um, and a lot of them have been studied. And there have been recent studies. There was one that I pulled recently that's from a published out of Northwestern University that suggested some kind of possible like immune crossover from COVID vaccines into at least one other type of human coronavirus. Um, they, they isolated human serum um, from those from patients who had been vaccinated and looked uh, to see whether or not they had antibodies that were sufficiently neutralizing against SARS-1, the SARS early SARS virus, and then just the one type of common cold virus. And it showed that there was some, you know, COVID vaccination did kind of have a bleed over um, neut um, antibody neutralization effect. And then they replicated that in mice by actually doing kind of some kind of prospective study, just vaccinating mice and exposing them to similar viruses. So yeah, this is uh, going to be, you know, something that we discover more about. I think the evidence right now is trending in that direction that, yeah, if you vaccinate against one coronavirus, you're going to have some kind of crossover protection. But I think that's important to keep in mind is that, um, first of all, coronaviruses are an enormous family of viruses. They're very genetically diverse. Um, and you think about viruses like, oh, there's only one type or something else. There, We have more in common, humans have more in common with like coral 
or plants than certain viruses have with each other. So just saying you have, oh, there's some immunity to X virus because of this vaccine, that might be interesting, but it's it's not necessarily going to you know, be a, it's not a panacea. It's not a pan, you know, coronavirus vaccine. Um, the other question is, you know, do we need a pan coronavirus vaccine? Because overwhelmingly, most coronaviruses that we deal with on a regular basis, at least pre-COVID, just cause, you know, minor infection, minor illness. And it's really just the juice is not worth the squeeze to, to make large batches of vaccines for those coronaviruses either. So I think there are going to be some interesting studies that continue to come out. Yes, there is some preliminary evidence that happens in some cases. Um, I think it's promising to show as kind of an afterthought because Moderna and other companies are very heavily looking into uh, RNA-based vaccines, like you mentioned, for like a like a universal flu vaccine as opposed to having to do like an every year seasonal antigen-based flu vaccine. Um, I think there's a lot of promise for those RNA vaccines, and this is one piece of the puzzle. But yes, you are correct. This evidence is coming out. I don't think the public should consider it as like the COVID vaccine is the solution to all these viruses, but it's also, do we need a solution to all these viruses kind of thing? Right. And I think that's, that actually leads really great into another question. And that's talking about viral evolution. Cause you know, <clears throat> as we look at, you know, what the Spanish flu was, the fact that there are human coronaviruses out there, we do, you know, as you kind of talked about, there is this viral evolution towards being less deadly you know one of the things that we've kind of talked about in the past is is that you know especially with a new virus that's entered the the human population you know it's it's not that you know whatever evol- you know, whatever evolves from the virus is automatically going to be less deadly it's kind of a crapshoot you end up with some viruses being more deadly as they evolve and and eventually finding you know a happy medium that doesn't kill the host but then you also have other viruses that you know over time, they become less deadly. And, you know, you do, I mean, there's very, 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 very preliminary data out of out of uh, Omicron that it's becoming less deadly. So maybe <clears throat> one of the things that I'm kind of looking at is, you know, why do we, why do we approach these diseases with such caution first? And, and as each variant comes out, we don't just breathe a sigh of relief that it might be less deadly. Here's an interesting thought. I would much rather have a virus that is way more deadly and way less infectious than a virus that is way more infectious and way less deadly. And the reason for that is you think about, you know, the percent of people who are going to die from a virus. Let's let's, let's set up a hypothetical situation. And because we're just talking, I can't like I, I would love to do this on like a whiteboard at some point. But the, the general the general thing goes like this. Right. If you have a virus that can infect people with an R of 10. So for every one person that gets infected, they'll infect 10 other people. And the virus in kills one percent of those people. Because it replicates and spreads to so many people so quickly, you're going to actually, at some, m- most likely going to have more people die from that virus because of its higher infectiousness, its ability to spread. More people are actually going to get hit hard by the virus because an enormously larger number of people are going to get it. Most people are going to be fine, but the actual objective number of people who are going to get very sick or die is going to be large. If you have a virus that whose R0 is 1.5 and its lethality is like 10%, yeah, people who are going to get sick are more likely going to die, but fewer people are going to get sick. And there is kind of a trade-off where if you have a virus that's really, really lethal, that does not spread too far, it's way less of a public health concern than a virus that is less lethal and spreads really far. And that is kind of exemplified. The real-world example is SARS-CoV-1 from 2003-2004 versus SARS-CoV-2 
you know, COVID-19. COVID-19 is much more transmissible, but way less deadly than SARS-CoV-1. Look which one is causing a massive pandemic and we're about to hit two years. If not, we actually are over two years if you consider the Wuhan data. SARS-CoV-1 mm-hmm. didn't has effectively it didn't die out effectively. It had an R naught that was greater than one. It did actually grow. But once we put in some control measures, especially in East Asia and in Canada, where we had a lot of people masking, lots of contact tracing, when there were fewer numbers of cases, all that stuff worked out really well. It effectively stifled the epidemic, the pandemic, right? Um, not mm-hmm. so much with a much more transmissible virus. And look at the public health burden. So when you talk about you know trade-offs and why are we not breathing a sigh of relief when we hear things are less um, less virulent overall or less deadly, it's because there are concerns about if it is way more transmissible and vaccine evasive. Because if a if a if a, a strain comes out that is much more transmissible and tends to infect people with who are vaccinated more effect, uh, more effectively than previous strains. More people who are vaccinated are going to die. More people who are unvaccinated are going to die. And it's going to continue being a problem, even though, you know, at some level, the virus might be less deadly. So it's a trade-off. It's the math. It's, it's a, kind of a balancing of your equations, right? There's, there's a trade-off between the two. Um, but that's why there isn't an instant side relief. Like, oh, it's less deadly. No big deal. Because it, transmissibility, infectiousness, the ability of a virus to spread is a very, very big concern and is in some cases much more of a concern for the public health community at large than a virus that is very deadly in and of itself that does not transmit too well. And so basically, basically, you know, to to really sum that one up, 10% of a very small number is a very small number, but 1% of a very large number is a very large number. Very well said. Very well said. That's that's exactly, that's the bottom line of my my diatribe there. That just blew my mind too. So now let's have a little bit more fun because I think that there's some really neat stuff out there that we get to talk about in terms of uh, not, you know, we, we do talk about COVID a lot, but one of the things about vaccination I think is really fascinating is, is that, you know, there's, there's been a lot of work done, but there's been such an influx of money to help speed up technologies and speed up productions that there's some really cool stuff coming out there. So there's a couple that I want to talk about. One that definitely has, it won't affect me, you know, myself, but it affects the relationships around me. And that is, um, you know, how we've got vaccines developing for things like um, the news the new Alzheimer's vaccine that's being uh, developed and, and tested. One of the things that I think is really interesting is, is that, you know, we have this giant fear around taking a vaccine for COVID because, well, the technology is too new. But, you know, for somebody like me who um, lost my grandfather and watched his life deteriorate as Alzheimer's took him, you know, knowing that this new technology is potentially going to keep, you know, family members of mine from ever having to deal with that is really intriguing. So... With things like the Alzheimer's vaccine, and I don't know how familiar you might be with this new one, you know, what is what do you think people need to understand in terms of the concerns of being vaccinated for things we've never vaccinated against before, like, you know, like Alzheimer's? It's not like a virus, like where we've vaccinated for the flu and other things like that. And, and I mean, vaccinating against a virus. This is, in a lot of ways, vaccinating against those things is something that we've done for 100 years or more in various ways. But for something like Alzheimer's, like, what does that look like for for people who are, you know, afraid of losing their mind and their ability to function one day? 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey everybody, my name is Jason from Public Access America. My name is Adam from Adam has a beard. My name is Corbin Elliott and I am with the Peace and Purpose Podcast. And you can find any of our podcasts anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Brilliant, gentlemen. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Thank you. Now we're going to dig it with a dab of double gooey dog roll. So cats, wrap off your whiskers and stretch out your fangs. Another fantastic question. You you really came prepared. Um, so let's back up for a second and talk about this new Alzheimer's vaccine that's kind of hit the news recently. Um, so the the idea of how it's supposed to work is that so like you said, Alzheimer's is not caused by a virus or a bacterium that we could vaccinate against because of infectiousness. Alzheimer's is caused or at least strongly associated with chronic inflammation in the brain that is linked to what are called the plaques of these proteins called amyloid beta or beta amyloid proteins. Um, And basically these proteins, for whatever reasons, build up in our brain. There's interactions between beta and other types of proteins but the, the main thing is that there's it in, uh, causes chronic inflammation and that the cells in your brain that are not neurons that you know are part of thinking and processing and behavior and response, but there's actually other cells in your brain that are supposed to clear out these um, the, or are supposed to keep the brain clean, essentially, don't do their job as well with these plaques in place. And so the idea of the vaccine is you know give the immune system something that will not recognize a pathogen, a, a viral pathogen or a bacterial pathogen that like, causes an infectious disease, but rather uh, stimulates the uh, immune system to recognize these plaques and kind of clear them out. And so it's a different it's a different twist on vaccines. Um, there have been preliminary ideas for similar things like cancer vaccines that have come out. I think there was a couple that, of trials that were happening in Cuba, actually, for, for cancer vaccines. But I think it's important to keep in mind that, first of all, this is a phase one trial. Right? There's a, mm-hmm. probably going to be a few dozen participants that the, for the purpose of a phase one trial is like safety and getting the dosage right. And then phase two and phase three trials are meant to look at the efficacy, how well the vaccine works. So this is very early in the technology. But moreover, I think it's important to keep in mind that even though this is a vaccine that is designed or believed to be intended for um, 
a condition or disease that is not an infectious disease. The process is very standardized for the, the management of these vaccines as they go through the approval process, right? So with the COVID vaccine, you mentioned offhand, I want to I wanna briefly touch on that. Even though the COVID vaccines were, uh, were people think that they were rushed or they were developed really quickly, the technology studying them was, was, was decades in the making, this mRNA, understanding how mRNA can be used, the technology behind it. The, what made it possible for that technology to be harnessed very quickly was, first of all, the brilliance of the scientists involved, but second of all, the process through which we analyze, review, and approve and authorize vaccines is very standardized, right? The way that we go through these phases of clinical trials, the way that um, approval happens, the way that emergency authorization happens, all that stuff is really well put together and is reviewed by scientists who actually really understand the data and understand the, the science behind what the vaccine is trying to do. And so if people are concerned about it, people are concerned about the vaccines or, or for whatever reason, the reality is that we are, you know, and I, I don't I don't mean to get overly patriotic here, but we we are the, the the greatest scientific and medical community in the world. We have the most long the longest term, most reliable track record of putting out fantastic vaccines um, for all kinds of conditions. And through that process, we have refined our ability to go through these stages of trials. So if this vaccine falls flat, it's going to fall flat for um, for whatever reason. It's going to be caught. And the reality is that this this clinical trials process. Most vaccines, most prescription drugs, most things that go into clinical trials don't actually wind up working because the the system filters out those that are not safe and that are not effective very very well. And that's something might be hard for people to to stomach, given you know the EUA, the mass vaccination campaign of COVID. But the reality is, every medication that your doctor has ever given you, or every vaccine that has been ever been able to be given to you, has gone through a process like this that has been refined for decades and decades and has been improved upon steadily as as the process has been executed and re-executed. That's an important point. Yeah, the suitcase was already made. It was just what we put into it was innovative. Yeah. So, so to kind of make sure that we're very clear on this, we're not producing these plaques in a, right. that would end up in the brain because like because that's one of the things that we constantly hear well well people who are vaccinated for covid are getting covid no that's not how it works so the same question then are people who are getting vaccinated for alzheimer's going to get alzheimer's <laughs> no i if the vaccine the way so to get a little more detail about the way this vaccine works again i i am not an alzheimer's expert i did the reading through the original papers that published about this you know the vaccine that was being trialed in mice and is now going to clinical trials other people are more expert in neurology than I am, and I'm just going to neuroscience than I am. I'm going to put that out there. But the way that this vaccine works is it's, it introduces what's called an adjuvant, which is an immune stimulating molecule that is designed or intended to uh, stimulate our white blood cells, you know, which are our immune kind of boxers or our frontline fighters in our body, um, to recognize and clear these plaques of beta amyloid beta or beta amyloid uh, proteins that build up more effectively. So it's not introducing like a component of the plaque into your body so that the immune system recognizes it more. It's right. actually designed to just be an immune stimulator in a different way. And that's the other thing about vaccine technology in general is that, you know, no two vaccines are the same and there's all kinds of different ways that we stimulate the immune system to do interesting stuff. The flu vaccine is designed, you know, you introduce actually you know, antigens, components or fractionated components of a, of a virus that cannot replicate into the immune system, into your blood, body, so your immune systems, your cells can recognize it and produce the antibodies. Uh, with the COVID vaccines, the mRNA, Pfizer, Moderna, we're actually having our bodies temporarily make 
copies of those antigens, right? There right. Are, are there are other types of vaccines that do different things. And so vaccine technology is highly varied and there's no one single formula for how it works. <clears throat> um, how There's no like, this is how the vaccine system works. It's how the vaccine immunostimulation process works. Um, and that is all the more important for yeah. us to be upfront and uh, open about the way things work, why it's important to read the methods of studies, and why uh, it's important we have these clinical trials processes in place where you know so much of this, so much of these trials are dedicated not just to the results but mainly to the methods. You know, you got you can get your results if if it works out, but did your were your methods robust? Did you have an appropriately powered study? Did you use appropriate formulations of the vaccine? Did you adhere to you use the same formulation that you used in the preclinical trials as you did the clinical trials? Right. A lot of the focus of these these clinical study reviews for clinical trials are focused on the methods. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's an important point to keep in mind. I love that. You told me once that it's almost like giving your putting information into your body's library so that your immune system can access that information later. Yes. And yes. So I love the analogies that you give me that I can carry on to people. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate that you like them. I, I, I hope that they make sense, but uh, it's mm -hmm. always good to, to have a back brief as it were, to make sure that what I'm sharing, it's, I'm not just babbling. It's a, it's making sense mm -hmm. to people. So would the clin I'm sorry, would the clinical trials include people that have these plaques or people that are looking to avoid it? So would it be people that have the pre-existing pre condition to get the plaques or people that have overwhelming amounts? I actually don't know. I'll have to get back to you on that. Um, but the, the phase one trial, I think it's important to think in numbers, right? A phase one trial is dozens of people. Right. A phase right. two trial is dozens of hundred hundreds and a phase three is hundreds to thousands right so this is again extremely early on for this mm -hmm. the way this vaccine technology works and it's only going to be a few dozen people and the point of this is to make sure that you don't give people a vaccine and then they have very severe consequences right. it's not necessarily meant to assess whether or not the the, the yeah. vaccine works per se but, but i don't I actually know whether or not it's like people who are pre-selected to have conditions for alzheimer's i think you know if i were in charge of this you know Take that however you will, disclaimers, right? Mm -hmm. If I were in charge, I would only be having this vaccine. I'd be looking at people who are high risk, you know, identified potentially for Alzheimer's. So, right. uh, Jeffrey, you're talking about family history, right? You know, family right. history of Alzheimer's, that's a concern. Not my family, but step family, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, like those are the people that I would want to target with a phase one trial and at least for a first uh, preliminary trial of, of these kinds of vaccines, especially right. given that it's like delving into very new territory. But I do not know for sure. I'll have to do another quick read through and get an answer to you guys. I hope we can keep following this. It would be a nice story to follow to completion almost, you know. Give give it a couple years. These are, these mm -hmm. trials take a long time. Okay. Especially because this one is so new. We'll keep podcasting them. You know, and that's and that's one of the things is like I know that, you know, when we look at testing stuff, a lot of the times it's like, you know, we're dealing with very healthy subjects. And and there are mm -hmm. people out there that have the precursors for Alzheimer's that are still very healthy. And so it would be interesting <clears throat> to be able to vaccinate people before they ever develop symptoms. Yeah. Or like in some of the cases where I was reading where you know, uh, mice that were affected with Alzheimer's uh, after they got vaccinated started to show uh, significant improvements and and regain in in function. So to me, it, it definitely, like I agree with Dan, like it makes far more sense that, you know, you would want to test on this particular population because then the question mm -hmm. is, is, 
do you really need to test on people who don't have that precursor? Like it's, it's a very different story than like, you know, dealing with a virus or like, you know, like COVID or any other virus where it's like, you don't have to have that virus. But like Dan said, you're not dealing with a virus. You're dealing with plaque and proteins. Yeah. And I think more broadly, you talk about vaccines, when talk about vaccines in general, vaccines are only a very small point. It's the tip of the spear, basically of a very large, I don't want to say the word industry, but a very large um, group of, of scientific expertise yeah. that studies an, uh, a virus or a pathogen or, or a disease in general, right? So you have, for every vaccine that's developed, you have years and years of preliminary research, basic science, understanding how a condition or a disease or, or a, a, mm-hmm. a neuropathy or whatever works. And unfortunately, a lot of those scientists don't end up getting the credit or don't end up getting the um the hailing is, you know, the heroism of those who finally developed the vaccine. But every vaccine is basically standing on the shoulders of giants, including the COVID vaccines, which everyone says they were rushed when they were really quick. Well, the reality is that it's pretty quick to take a piece of mRNA and put it into a, like a micelle of, of, uh, of glycolipids or whatever and inject it into something. It's, it's very quick to make that technology because we've been studying mRNA for decades. We've been studying nucleic acids like RNA and DNA mm-hmm. for decades, and we really understand how to manipulate those well. And a the COVID the question, virus. Right? And the COVID, the, the, and the coronavirus and coronaviruses in general. Right. You know, and more more openly, we this is not just for COVID, but for all kinds of conditions. There's a whole ton of research into all kinds of different research directions mm-hmm. where we understand the basics of how things work. And then once we understand the basics, then we start developing tools that are meant to be cures or preventions so you know keep keep that in mind whenever we're talking about a vaccine a vaccine never pops up right out of the blue and and the covid vaccines did not pop up right out of the blue astrazeneca was studying the coronavirus for 10 years or so so yeah there was a lot of information for the suitcase right yeah, and Moderna Moderna was founded as a company based on not necessarily vaccine technology, but understanding the u- clinical utility of mRNA-based delivery technology, right? And that's been around they've been around for more than 10 years and they've been doing all kinds of exploratory work. They just happen to be thrust into the public eye when the emergency happens that hits the news. Right. And most science, if most times, if you're a scientist and you hit the news, something's gone wrong. But, yeah. and, <laughs> right. But that's the, that's the reality is that, like, um, you know, behind, behind every cure, behind every prevention, behind every prescription is, is an army of, of medical scientists who've been studying their lives, spending their lives studying a very, very specific, um, either a process within the body or a very specific disease. Now, I got a fun one because this one goes into something that I um, used to be very, very, very involved in. Um, I love, I love looking at um, so biotech, for example, um, gene editing, things like that. There's so much, there's so much possibility out there. Now, granted, my my expertise was more in the uh, agricultural end of things, but there's a lot that can still carry around. Now, uh, one of the things that hit the news last week is is that there is a vaccine that is currently being tested uh, for valley fever. Now, having lived in Phoenix and and know people that have dealt with valley fever, valley fever is a fungus. The process that they used in developing this potential vaccine um, that at least is for dogs, it's, it's only for dogs at this point. What they did was they took the valley fever fungus they gene edit it so that way it isn't deadly anymore. Then they reproduced that fungus and injected it into dogs. 
to see if it developed an antibody response. Turns out it did. Then they took the actual valley fever fungus, injected it into dogs, and guess what? They had an immunoresponse to that fungus, and they never got sick. So, what, number one, I mean, is this something that could be used to help uh, deal with other potential fungal infections in humans? And number two, is there a way that you could potentially do something like this with other viruses um, as another means of vaccination efforts? Jeffrey, you have stumbled backwards into the wonderful world of live attenuation, <laughs> and which is a very standard practice in, in general, or a philo- <clears throat> I don't want to say a philosophy, but a, a methodological approach towards a lot of vaccines. So um, the idea behind live attenuation is basically that you take something that is really nasty, that can cause a nasty disease, do something to it so that it's less deadly or non-lethal or non-virulent, but still resembles the actual pathogen that causes the nasty disease and use that to stimulate the immune system. Um, and that's it, it, for fungal pathogens. I think that's really exciting and really interesting. I'm, I'll, I'll be very curious to see where this goes. Um, but you know, thinking about some live attenuated vaccines, that includes the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella, rotavirus, smallpox was a live attenuated vaccine, the oral polio vaccine, uh, flumist. Flumist is a live attenuated vaccine, right? So live attenuation has been around for decades and is a very reliable kind of series of platforms for, for vaccination against all kinds of conditions and all kinds of infectious diseases. The downside, so the, the kind of the trade-off between that, so you know, live attenuation is one major kind of school of vaccine development technology. The other one is based on, you know, just antigen, you know, antigen-based uh, vaccine development, where you just have pieces of the virus or pieces of the bacteria that are not lethal themselves or don't cause the disease themselves, um, but uh, are just kind of components that the immune system can recognize, right? Those tend to be a little bit less risky. And again, we talk about vaccine risk in a much more strenuous way than we talk about other medications. But those tend to be a little bit less risky because with every live attenuated strain of whatever, you always run the risk of if people are really immunocompromised or some kind of gene rearrangement, if the virus allows for it. or There's always some freak stuff that can happen with a, with a live attenuated um, a pathogen that can you know, potentially cause an infection from a vaccine. Right? And that actually happened um, with uh, the early stage polio vaccines with the Cutter incident um, where uh, live attenuated vaccines were not properly quality assessed and kids died from you know, getting massive doses of polio uh, from, from a, what was meant to you know, save them from polio. Um, but they tend to be more immune stimulating because those live attenuated pathogens kind of replicate a little bit in your body and then allow you to have a bit of a stronger immune response than just having an antigen injected into you, which can't reproduce itself. So you kind of, with a live attenuated strain, you're allowing yourself to get a little bit infected, not in a way that you can cause disease to yourself or to others, but just enough for your immune system to go, hey, this is actually kind of a problem and and have a bit of a stronger response than you usually get from just having a piece of your pathogen in the body. So now, because because uh, being the kind of person that I am, gene editing has always been a fascination for me because of the potential that you can do with that. So a little bit of history then. How much uh, in terms of live attenuation have we used gene editing? Like at what point did we stop like trying to quote unquote, you know, partially kill the virus and start using gene editing in order to make this possible? Because there are going to be a lot of people out that are like, oh, gene editing, we're trying to make... Oh, what was that fucking movie? I am legend happen. Like when we all saw that fucking post go around, and I'm like, Oh Jesus Christ. Here we go. <clears throat> Whisper, right? 
Is what? CRISPR? CRISPR, yeah. CRISPR. That's one of, yeah, that's one one gene editing technology. I think this is this is a bit of a one of those weird scientists leaning rhetorical questions. It's like, you know, what what do you call gene editing and what when you say gene editing, what is your definition of it? Because <laughs> speaking, I love that you're hitting on this. Because <laughs> strictly speaking, if you think about any kind of live attenuation, sort of you could make the argument that any kind of live attenuated vaccine has been gene edited. Right, any kind of live pathogen that you're using that's a live attenuated strain of whatever is gene edited. Now, did you use CRISPR or some other technology to kind of go and do surgery on its genome, like where you spliced its site A and site B to make something funky happen? Like in this case with this this gene editing, they they took out this CPS1 gene, which is known to you know modify the structures of proteins to make the virus more vir- or to make the fungus more virulent and cause it more disease. Right, that's one type of gene editing, but the way that we make the flu vaccine, or generally, is you you take a strain of flu and you pass it a bunch of times through an egg, and like you let it infect a live egg, and then you take it out, and then you infect another live egg, and you and take it out, and you infect, you basically force it to evolve to infect. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that not gene editing? Right? So because you're 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 forcing evo- natural evolution to try and simulate what will happen with multiple passages of infections um, in a human population, right? But you're forcing the virus to evolve. And with live attenuation, there's different ways that you can live attenuate. That's a pretty common one. But any kind of live attenuation is you're taking a virulent strain, a, a nasty bacterial or viral pathogen or fungal pathogen in this case, and and making it less deadly. But the way that that always works for life is almost always genetic, you know, epigenetics, RNA, whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, the way that you express, you know, DNA to RNA to proteins or in some viruses, RNA to protein, when you mess with that, that's technically gene editing. And how you mess with it, there's all kinds of different ways to do it. We just think gene editing in kind of popular science as like the slicing and dicing deliberately of, you know, doing the, the, during the genome surgery. But... That's only one small component of how the system works. You know, the system, man, hits blunt kind of thing. But Public Access America. It's always funny because, like, especially because as you know, libertarians, we get a ton of shit, even amongst other libertarians. I think political philosophy is a lot like religion and where there's moments you have to go on faith and trust what somebody else is saying. The main, the main focus is it's like less dependence on the government because, well... We've seen how that's gone. And you don't have to do that if you think about it in a human way. You know, more dependence on connections with each other. But you can always bring it back to what would one human do for another? What would a hundred do for a hundred? People looking out for people. Find Public Access America anywhere you find your favorite podcast every Sunday and Thursday. And join the chat on YouTube at Public Access America every Sunday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Communities looking out for community. Public Access America. History in the making, making history in the making, in the making, in the making, in the making, in the making. Well, and that's where in the agricultural community, one of the things that we always talked about is <clears throat> what is a genetically modified organism? Because the the, fa- the fantastic thing is, is that the simple act of crossbreeding two potential species in order to create a more robust species of whatever it is you're trying to harvest is technically genetically modifying an organism because you are specifically selecting the traits that you hope to get. It's just that, you know, 
in one way, it's it's a very slow methodology. And what you're having to do is like, okay, well, I tried to crossbreed them. That didn't work. I got this really crappy looking cow. Another time you crossbreed them, it's like, oh, perfect. I got this, I got this, you know, calf that delivered very smoothly. And then it turned into a giant bull that I can sell for a bunch of meat. You know, it's, Jeffrey, it's no you're me, different. You're, Jeffrey, you're making me want a steak right now. Me uh, too. Well, Hell yeah. Well, then get a steak, dude. Like, <laughs> I, I hit up long with steak house last night and got a massive ribeye. It was great. Anyways. Oh, yeah. So anything, anything allowed to live is gene editing. Man. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things like you talk about, you know, everything is a chemical. It's like, I'm not going to eat that. That's full of chemicals, right? Mm. Well, everything is a chemical. And, everything, and, yeah. and to, to your point, I think it's also important to keep in mind that it's it's not... I think when you talk about we talk about gene editing, people th- are worried that the edited gene is going to do something funky to us, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of the star- source of it. And that's not really how any of that works. It's always like you know, for example, like you, you were in the agricultural business, Jeffrey. You, you obviously know about glyphosate resistance. Roundup resistance is one of the most commonly used genetic modifications um, in agriculture today. Right. The the the, the, the issue with that or the rising concerns about glyphosate resistance is not that the there's a gene in the plant that causes the disease that or causes a disease or makes you sick or whatever. It's mm-hmm. that the plant might have residual levels of Roundup that if you eat enough of it, it might be a problem, right? And there's an ongoing debate about that, and there have been lawsuits settled, and there's some preliminary evidence, right? That's the jury's still a little bit out on that, but the point is that the discussion is not whether or not the gene is going to kill you. It's whether or not the gene allows something to happen that increases your health risk for another reason. And mm. it's talking about like a mediation of like, it's not the, it's, it's, it's talking about mediation versus moderation, right? You don't have A causing B. It's A is linked to Q is linked to X is linked to theta. And then theta is eventually linked to B, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's important for us to pause and be mindful of when we kind of slip into that mindset of, oh, it's easier to think about A causing Causing B, oh, the vaccine yeah. causes COVID, or the vac, or or the 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 GMO causes cancer. Mm, nah, nah, not really, right? right? Interesting. Exactly. Rabies, and that rabies was, and, might eat cancer, but rabies will kill you. And that's and that's the thing. Like everybody was so worried about these Franken foods, like like to paint like tomato plants were going to be walking the face mm-hmm. of the earth, and you'd have these tomatoes like trying to eat people. Meanwhile, people were like just trying to figure out how in the hell they can make tomatoes grow better in cold environments. Because guess what? You know, food scarcity is a real thing, and and having the ability to grow foods in a variety of environments, especially in the face of climate change, is a very important thing to know. Absolutely. And I think it's understandable. It comes back to kind of a common thing we've discussed about in our in our various podcasts. Like people are gonna have misconceptions or misunderstandings about science, right? Mm-hmm. Respecting the people people for having those misunderstandings, right? Not thinking that they're stupid or lesser or they're idiots or whatever. And people just misunderstand stuff. I get stuff wrong all the time. My wife routinely reminds me about it, right? Um it's, no. it's important to <laughs> but it's important to 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 have those discussions in an open and free way where it's like yeah let's let's break this down and have this realistic discussion for example i had a couple of conversation a few weeks ago it was actually you know keep coming back to the covid vaccine but um someone had a very uh serious misconception about you know covid had to be uh genetically manipulated in a lab it had to be like a lab accident because it doesn't survive well on surfaces Right, and then I was like, okay, let's break this down, and it turns out that the guy just had a really fundamental un- misunderstanding of how viruses can spread, 
and then we mm-hmm. talked about how norovirus spreads and how hepatitis A spreads, and there's like, oh yeah, it turns out there's yeah, and there was a discussion, and, and he learned something from it. I never tried to say now because we talked about that, you're now you know here's the proof that you're wrong about your your point, but sometimes it's good just to have a little discussion that leaves a seed of hey, maybe I didn't fully understand the preconceptions I had that led me to this conclusion, and let them chew on it a little bit, right? So yeah, yeah I think that's important to keep in mind. So yeah, just having a discussion about how it's actually maybe there's a mediation as opposed to a direct cause breaking that stuff down and taking the time is by far the most effective way to 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 break some of these misconceptions being respectful and and respecting people's intelligence because people get stuff wrong all the time yeah i think honestly people have access to jeffrey's pointing to himself (laughs) people have access to so much information that sometimes it can confuse them when they don't have a certain degree in the the basic understandings i think we're getting overwhelmed on social media by a lot of facts hitting us all at once and our brains Mm -hmm. just can't do that so that's why i appreciate both of you for doing this in the right languages that we will see in these posts but going on further to explain a lot of what we're reading well and that's so and that's you. one of the things that you and i talked about jason was the fact mm-hmm. that you know i i you know wanted to look at my antibody levels because you know to me it what logically made sense was is that if i had a high enough antibody level count i should be fine when it comes to COVID. Sure. but in doing actual research and reading and finding out that we don't have any sort of you know, defined, this is the amount of antibodies that you need right. or the specific antibodies that you need or this, that, or the other. And that really it was more of a time-based function. And especially in the face of, you know, something that is definitely changing. It's about ha- knowing that you have a current set of antibodies that are able right. to fight off what the infection is going to be. And that, you know, in and of itself is, is that, you know, there's a lot of things about science where like we have some really neat ideas in the beginning, mm-hmm. but then as we come to learn a bit more, it's like, mm, okay, that doesn't hold up now in the face of what we're learning. I do have an interesting question from this conversation. If there is a COVID coronavirus that does mutate past the point of our vaccines to recognize it, would that be considered a different COVID? Yeah. Oh, you're, you're touching on another really funky subject that's kind of under the radar in, in, in infectious diseases, right? How we define species in, you know, bacteria, viruses, and strains, and lineages, and Everyone has, or, or cohorts, or there's all kinds of languages that is kind of interchangeably used when you talk about different, you know, families of pathogens, right? Um, one classic example is that, so there's E. coli, right, that causes really nasty infections. And then there's Shigella, which causes other types of really nasty GI infections. And everyone thought for the longest time that they were very different species. They look kind of similar and they functioned kind of similarly, but they were very different species, right? Then the era of genomics came out and it turns out that Shigella and E. coli are close enough genetically to be considered technically the same species. But never tell that to somebody who studies Shigella for a living because they'll get real butthurt, right? So, um, (laughs) yeah, so... That's a classic example, but yeah, that's a that's a growing problem that we're having. And speaking as somebody who I do have a, a considerable experience, not just in you know infectious disease, but my special subspecialty is genomic epidemiology, right? Um, studying using genomics to study the evolution of pathogens over time, yeah. um, and seeing and associating that with you know transmissions, outbreaks, all that kind of stuff. 
we, we do need to get a better handle on what we call a viral strain versus a viral species versus whatever. Um, I think what will probably happen is for the sake of convenience, at least for the time being, uh, we're going to continue going on with this like Greek letter alphabet and having variants um, identify and have SARS-CoV-2, kind of the original like Wuhan strain, be kind of the ancestral family and just go forward with that. But how that fits in and whether or not we're going to call SARS-CoV-2 a different species or what do we call a different species or whatever, a lot of that in the microbial world has yet to be properly defined. With bacteria, it's like 95% average nucleotide identity across the entire genome, whatever. But viruses are a different beast because there's there are viruses that have genomes based on DNA and viruses that genomes based on RNA. And there are viruses that have RNA that's you know negative sense, which different from RNA, RNA viruses that are positive sense, right? That's we generally talk about those viruses, you know more broadly as like families or orders based on how fundamentally different they are in terms of, you know, their, their life cycles and what genetic material they're made up of and everything. So it, it, there is no clean answer. That's kind of the bottom line of all of this. But I do think that we're just going to continue having, you know, calling it SARS-CoV-2. And then we've kind of established our, our standard nomenclature, the way that we um, identify different strains, this, you know, B117 versus B1617.1. And the, we're going to continue doing that. Just like we've been continuing with flu, flu has its own nomenclature for how it works. Um, I think we're going to continue doing that. But okay. when we call it a different species, I, I really don't know. Frankly, I don't think genomic epidemiology has been around long enough as a field to answer that question for just about anything, except perhaps bacteria. Dan, before I let you go, is there any hopes you have for the holidays and the future coming up? I hope that we continue to adjust to the new normal. Uh, and by that, I really mean just some general things that are, we are, we're kind of amazed that we took for granted beforehand, like, being allowed to just be at home when you're sick. Like if you're sick, being allowed to stay home as opposed to having this, what we call in infection prevention, this bias towards presenteeism, right? Mm -hmm. If you're sick, stay home and more people are getting normalized to that. I hope that we continue to address that. I think if people are in our families are sick, you're being more careful, are being more attentive to like hand hygiene, like using, you know, hand sanitizers and washing your hands more frequently. I just, my hope for the holidays is that, you know, as we kind of continue to adapt to the, 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 the era of COVID, we continue to take that stuff more seriously because it's not just for protecting ourselves against COVID. It's for protecting against flu, other types of common colds, also other severe infections, right? All yes. kinds of things. You know, hand hygiene is the number one thing in infectious disease prevention that we talk about because it's linked to just about everything, right? Right. So I hope my hope for the holidays is that even if we do kind of find a resolution where we find we kind of balance our lives more with COVID more effectively with either better vaccines or a reduction in virulence or whatever, I hope we continue to take seriously some of the methods we have because they're really useful to control disease just in general of all kinds of causes so my hope is you guys continue to spread this message my hope is that everyone has a safe and pleasant holiday um, and i hope that people continue to want to have productive discussions about these evidence-based practices in medicine love it and you have yourself a very sterile christmas too <laughs> have a sterile christmas and, and cook, <laughs> cook your turkeys cook your ham look it up fda has a model food code for how much you should cook stuff be yeah. careful. Don't 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 need any parasites in you. That's right. You mm. can always visit our um our episode on Fred and food safety <laughs> to find out more about that. How about you, Excellent. Jeffrey? Any wishes for the for the season? 
for the season, you know, there there has been enough. Um, there's been enough division out in the world lately, yeah. you know, and, and my, my biggest thing, uh, is that for the holiday season, you look at what, look at what the least of your community has around you and, and go out and try and do what you can for your community yourself. If that means giving to the food bank, if that means, you know, you see somebody struggling to buy their groceries in the grocery store for holiday dinner, you know, pick up the tab. You know, if you have the ability to do it, sometimes just being being that one person, that, you know, gives somebody the chance to not have to choose between laundry and, and, you know, their turkey dinner for Christmas. It makes a huge difference for the family for that day. So I would say, you know, just do what you can for your community. And if you see someone struggling, give them a hand. Well said. Pay it forward. I love it. Five Americans is facing in food insecurity today, and that was statistics from before Mayfield. So, just yeah, remember that. Thank you, Jeffrey. And I'll say have a happy whatever that happy is to you. Thank you for listening to Public Access America. We'll talk to you another time. Bye. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. My poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit. And keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome, welcome to public, to public access, access America. America. Yes, we can. Sunday live streams on YouTube. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter, on Twitter. Twitter. What? Apple Podcasts, Podcast. Stitcher, Stitcher Smart Radio, 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 Radio Public, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.